to watch my daughter perform with the show choir before I get home tonight. So you can pray for me that I can stay awake. I have plenty of, I have plenty of sunflower seeds, so that'll help. That's my, that's my stay awake method. That's what kept me awake from the Kansas City airport to here, so, uh, or to home. Uh, just to let you know, I was in Nashville all weekend. Uh, I did not come back with a southern accent, but I've always get, been convinced if I sounded like Beth Moore, like, you know, I'd have 3,000 people at my Bible studies too, but I, I think it's all in the accent. Uh, by the way, the dean of the music department at Belmont, if you close your eyes, you are pretty sure Paula Dean is talking to you. Uh, I almost, she had silver hair, I almost asked her, you aren't by chance related. And I thought I could so offend her that my daughter would never get into the music department at Belmont University, so I didn't do that. But we had a wonderful visit. Um, she made a Nashville bucket list, one of which was make mom cry about me going to college, which I didn't do a whole lot, but I might do now. Um, uh, so long as she is accepted and so long as God works out the finances, I just felt like that was a good fit for her. So that's exciting, and she's excited. So even if, even if the music thing doesn't work out, she'll be a social work, maker, ma social work major and be surrounded by music, and she'll be happy. So uh, anyway, so that was a great weekend. We flew out of Kansas City and had a whirlwind weekend. Two of my nieces live in Nashville. One's a student at Belmont right now. One's a graduate. And um, so got to see them and flew from Nashville to Denver, which, of course, is the most direct route. <laughs> even, even the lady at the Southwest counter when we were going to be late into Denver and I was worried about making the connecting flight, even the lady at the counter went, why are you flying to Denver to get to Kansas City? <laughs> like, I don't even live in Kansas City. But we flew from Nashville to Denver, Denver to Kansas City, and then drove home late last night. Landed about midnight uh, and drove home. But I'm here. And I'm happy to teach, so do you have questions for me this morning? Yes, Diane. What is the means by which Paul's deliverance will come? And we will talk about that, because that word uh, is, actually means salvation, and in most, it can mean deliverance, but in most places that it is used in the uh, New Testament, it, it, um, it's salvation, and so we will, we will talk about that. Any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day, for this time for us to be together. Father, I pray that you would help me collect my thoughts and um, be able to focus and, and just pray that uh, our ears and our hearts would be open to what you have to say to us today. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first I want to introduce you a little bit to Philippians itself, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, and then, then we'll walk through those first 26 verses. Uh, Philippians was written by Paul, which is sort of duh. Uh, actually, this is one of those books where even the liberal theologians don't dispute it. Pretty much everyone says, yeah, this is, a, this is a official letter of Paul. And it was written to the church at Philippi, which, um, what, thank you, um, which it was in Macedonia, uh, so you see Greece there and, and Philippi, and there's an inset that has, um, um, that has Philippi uh, kind of blown up there. Uh, and you can see a few things about Philippi. Philippi was a very strategic, important city. In fact, it even says that in Acts 16, that it was the most important city of that area. And it was strategic and it was important for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, the Ignatian Way, which was one of the major roads of the Roman Empire, went right through the main drag of town. I mean, it went right through the heart of town, which made travel to and from Philippi much easier uh, to do. 
It was also just 10 miles from the very important port of Neapolis, which you can see just to the, uh, in that inset, just to the south uh, and east of, of Philippi. So it was very close to a major port. So consequently, there was a great deal of commerce uh, that happened in Philippi, uh, and there was a great deal of, uh, there were a great number of visitors that would come because travel was so much easier. Uh, by the time Paul wrote Philippians, uh, Philippi had been a Roman colony for about 100 years, so for quite a while. It's got a very kind of gory history, and because of the, the, the sort of tug of war between um, Mark Antony and somebody else, Brutus, I don't know, Cassius, one of those Shakespearean guys, um, because of the tug of war between them, there were actually a lot of former Roman soldiers that settled, kind of like Bellevue, <laughs> that settled... <laughs> Philippi. Oh, I'm weird this morning. Uh, so um, uh, Paul founded this church in the early 50s of the first century, uh, and I had you read about that, so I won't uh, go into that right now, but I just suffice to say that he was forced to leave again. I mean, everywhere the poor man went, he was, you know, run out of town on a rail, and uh, he left behind a diverse group of believers. Uh, everyone from, uh, you know, it would, it would seem that even the, the girl that was foretelling the future came to know Christ to a, to a, a Philippian jailer, to a Roman jailer. So uh, just a very diverse group of, lead, of, of followers, a diverse group of Christians that had trouble staying unified. And so that's going to be a real key to understanding Philippians. The church at Philippi was probably Paul's favorite church. It was something of an apostle's pet. Uh, he had a very close relationship with them, and you can see throughout the letter the passion uh, and the affection that he has for them. But it was by no means a perfect congregation. It was not a Stepford con congregation. It wasn't sort of lockstep with Paul. They had problems, and those are going to uh, kind of surface in this too. But they had been faithful and longtime supporters of Paul not just emotionally supporting him, but financially supporting him and supporting the causes for which he was raising money for the Jerusalem church and other things. So uh, even, even in their poverty, they were gracious and generous to support Paul and to support um, the, the universal church. Uh, when, uh, as I told you that this, this church was founded in the early 50s uh, on Paul's first missionary journey, the letter was probably written in the late 50s to early 60s, um, after Galatians. Not a whole lot after Galatians, but, but after Galatians. Now, where? Paul is definitely in prison as he's writing this, and he, he writes about that. The traditional opinion is that he was in prison in Rome, um, which we know that he, Paul was imprisoned in Rome in Acts. That's chronicled. Uh, the reason, the one of the reasons that that is the traditional opinion is that that's the opinion that's been handed down through time. There's, there was no other opinion of that until fairly recently. Uh, however, that opinion didn't pop up until like 200 or 300. I mean, it, that opinion took a while to, to uh, not, not that it took a while to come to a consensus, but that's the first place where we have that opinion written. Um, but also within the text itself, he talks about the Praetorian Guard, which is the Roman Guard. 
at, which would indicate Rome, except for they were deployed other places, and so it would be possible for there to be de the Praetorian Guard elsewhere. Also, at the end of the letter, he sends greetings from the household of Caesar, um, and that would indicate then also believers in the household of Caesar. Um, that would indicate also that they were in Rome, but those, ho that household of Caesar, those Romans, could have moved uh, elsewhere as well. So it's not a slam dunk. There are, uh, there are opinions other opinions out there that it might be someplace else. Some people, some theologians say Ephesus, some say Caesarea. Here's the deal. Uh, not only are those not written about in Acts, uh, which, you know, Luke wasn't duty-bound to tell of everything that ever, there are a lot of things that happened to Paul that aren't in Acts. But also, um, there are problems, just like there's some problems with pinning Rome as the place, there are problems with those places too, and they're probably harder to resolve. So uh, it's not a slam dunk for Rome, but I think it makes sense to just assume it was Rome until we get to heaven and we know for sure. Uh, as this was written, Paul was awaiting trial, the outcome of which is uncertain. He doesn't know, and we find that right away in the first chapter, that he doesn't know if he will live or die. Um, but no matter where he was imprisoned, most scholars believe that this was not his final imprisonment. In other words, this, that he did, in fact, survive this imprisonment, as Paul believed would happen. Um, we find out in the first uh, chapter. So why was it written? This is kind of complicated. Um, and the first part of it um, has to do with this guy, Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, um, well, first let me tell you that Philippians was written as something of a thank you note to the Philippians for money they had sent with Epaphroditus to help take care of Paul. And they had sent Epaphroditus himself to stay with Paul and take care of Paul. They were kind of hoping that Paul, if he had Epaphroditus, would send Timothy back to them because they really liked Timothy. And they kind of wanted Timothy to be their pastor, which will come into play with the letter. So Epaphroditus brought this uh, money for Paul and he was supposed to stay there. But something happened along the way, and probably along the way, or shortly after he got to Rome, he got deathly ill, uh, really, really sick, and almost died. Uh, and Paul's going to write about that in this as well, uh, in the letter as well. He did end up making a recovery, but Paul, because the Philippians were worried about Epaphroditus, and, for, and because Epaphroditus was homesick, actually sent the letter of Philippians with Epaphroditus back to Philippi. He didn't send Timothy. And so that will come into play a little bit later on. Uh, he also sends in the letter an explanation of why it's Epaphroditus coming home and not Timothy. The second uh, reason that uh, Philippians was written was as a plea for unity, as a plea for unity within the church. There were two women, their names were Yodia and Syntyche. I don't know any of you gals are pregnant, but these are names, if you like, original names, like that not everybody uses. <laughs> Don't know a Sintiki. Have you ever met a Sintiki? I'm not even sure that's how you pronounce it, but that's the way I've heard it pronounced before. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so apparently these two women were having a feud that had infected the entire church. They were quarreling with one another and people were taking sides. Ever had that happen? Uh, and it was, it was a, uh, having an impact on the entire church. And he will at the end address them specifically, which I just feel so sad that you get your 15 minutes of fame in the Bible and it's for having an argument. 
You know, if I'm going to get my 15 minutes of fame in the Bible, I want it to be for something, you know, she is a yoke fellow, a loyal yoke fellow or something like that. But uh, that's not what happened with Yodi and Syntyche. Um, but, the, but even though he only addresses them by name at the end of the letter, the uh, idea and the theme of unity is, is permeated throughout the letter, even beginning in the very first verses. Thirdly, um, one of the reasons that Paul wrote Philippians is to encourage the church to rejoice. And the word rejoice or some form of the word joy appears, I think, 14 times in the letter. But to rejoice in spite of circumstances. Because the Philippians were beginning to, to experience persecution. Uh, and, and Paul was telling them to rejoice even so. And he was the perfect person to write about this. Because he's in jail as he's writing it. And he's still not only saying, I rejoice. He's asking them to rejoice as well. Uh, fourthly, it was written as a warning against false teachers. Um, the warning is not nearly as strong at all as Galatians, and so he's probably concerned that what was happening in Galatia and elsewhere might filter its way to Philippi, but, but that kind of level of problem was not happening at Philippi. It was more preventative uh, than it was um, restorative as it was in, in Galatians. And then finally, um, he writes to give the Philippians who were concerned about him an explanation of his circumstances, uh, how he is doing, because they were very worried about him. Uh, he was in prison. They didn't know how he was being treated. They didn't know if he was sick. They didn't know if he was even alive. So uh, they loved him very much, and they wanted to know how he was doing. The interesting thing is that Paul, uh, in the section that we're going to look at today where he talks about his circumstances, doesn't really talk about his circumstances talks about how it is with the gospel. Uh, when uh, Josh went, first went away to the academy, somebody asked me, actually Cindy McVeigh asked me how I was doing, and I said, right now he's happy, so if he's fine, I'm fine. Uh, and she said, I get that, because she had two sons go to the academy. And Paul is essentially saying, you know what, the gospel's advancing, I'm fine. That's all that matters. Uh, I can rejoice. So the themes uh, kind of tied to those things. The themes of Philippians, the first one is Christian unity. The, the unity of the Philippian church was being tested from within and from without. And it was necessary both for the survival of the church and the witness of the church for the early church to be united. Nothing destroys our witness worse than we, when we start going <laughs> with each other, when we start biting and devouring one another. Uh, and so... Uh, Paul knew that that was uh, just tremendously important, and it's still important in the world today. In fact, this is what uh, Dr. Frank Thielman uh, says about uh, unity. Christian unity is absolutely, by the way, at the end there, he's quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Christian unity is absolutely crucial to being a Christian, but that unity is only Christian if it is founded on the apostolic gospel of Christ and him crucified. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. There are those who would um, sacrifice the gospel, uh, the purity of the gospel on the altar of unity. And Paul is not one of those people. There is a time, there is a place for us to say, you know what, I can't be unified with you in this because you are no longer proclaiming the true gospel. But there are a myriad of things under those um, absolute essentials where we part company 
um, theologically, but we don't need to part company as believers, that we need to stay unified on the essentials um, of the faith and unified as, as believers. So Paul is, Paul is ad adamant that the unity of the church is important, but it's not so important that we would sacrifice the purity of the gospel. Uh, a second theme is suffering. Not in the sense of answering that sort of age-old question of why does a good God allow people to suffer? That's not really Paul's bent in this. Rather, he's talking about our response to suffering, what our response should be to it, and how God can work in and through our suffering just as, as he did. And Paul's well qualified to talk about that. And, that and, and that's actually closely related to his next theme, which is joy. As I said, that some form of the word joy occurs 14 times. And despite his circumstances, which were bleak, Paul was joyful. And he commanded the Philippians to be joyful, to rejoice in the Lord always. Um, and, and so he, he's asking them to uh, do as he is doing and be joyful. Finally, um, there's a, a theme of the relationship between God's grace and human works. And we saw this in Galatians 2 as Galatians as well, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But then we also have a responsibility to live out the faith and to be obedient to God in that. And how those two things work together is part of what Philippians uh, is all about. So let's uh, begin by opening uh, the letter of Philippians and, and talking about it. Uh, Philippians 1 through 11 consists of the sort of opening greeting. And Paul, as in all his letters, begins his letter uh, sort of in the conventional way. In ancient times, and those of you who have studied a number of Paul's letters, this is very old news, but in ancient times there was a convention for opening letters. It was the name of the sender, the name of the recipient, and greetings. And Paul does stick with convention, sort of. At the same time, he infuses that convention with theology and with um, gratitude and just kind of puts his own stamp onto it, as well as previewing the themes of what he's going to talk about. You can pick out the themes that we just talked about in these uh, first 11 verses. So he's going to begin, actually, this, you might think these first two verses, these are the ones we skip over. What do they have to say to us? Actually, Paul is displaying humility for the Philippians, and for a reason. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't say Paul to the Philippians, does he? He says Paul and Timothy. He doesn't say Paul, an apostle, and Timothy his helper, does he? He says Paul and Timothy. He puts Timothy on a par with himself. He is sharing the stage completely with Timothy in this letter, even though Paul was the one dictating it. It was just as much from Timothy in Paul's mind as it was from Paul. Timothy was as important in this as Paul was, uh, and the Philippians loved him. So Paul is modeling humility. He isn't saying, I'm Paul and you better listen to me, which he kind of was with the Galatians. Um, <laughs> But he's saying it's from both of them. Secondly, what does he call himself? Do you remember what he called himself in Galatians? An apostle of God and of Christ Jesus. What does he call himself in Philippians? We're slaves. We're servants. We're servants of yours and servants of God. 
there's no mention of his status as an apostle. It, it, instead, he is emphasizing his lowliness uh, in this. Now, part of that is possibly because his apostleship obviously wasn't being um, questioned by this church. Uh, they, they respected and loved him. But I think there's more to it than that um, he, because he's also modeling humility again. We're slaves. Why? Why would he model hu uh, humility? Because unity requires that we be humble. Unity requires humility. The church at Philippi was struggling with unity. They were quarreling. And if their church or any other church is to be unified, we must humbly put the needs of others ahead of our own and consider other people to be more important than ourselves. Can you imagine what would happen to all the petty disagreements inside every church if believers would just do that much? Most of them would disappear. And so Paul is modeling for them the kind of humility required for unity in these first two verses. Um, and then he reminds them who they are. He says, to all the saints. Now that word can sometimes be a little misconstrued because, um, you know, he's not talking about saints in the sense that we talk about uh, saints that have been uh, declared saints. The word saint just means set apart one. Those who are set apart by God. And so anyone who is a believer in Christ is a saint uh, in that sense. For we have all been set apart by God. Um, and, and remember what we talked about in Galatians where uh, he talks about, Paul says, become who you are. Paul's going to spend the rest of, the, of Philippians explaining to the, the Philippians that they are saints. So become who you are. Live as though you were set apart by God because, in fact, you have been set apart by God. And then he says grace and peace, which is so typical of Paul. I think every letter begins with grace and peace. The interesting thing about that is that uh, in, a, in a conventional letter, it would say, Paul and Timothy to the church at Philippi, greetings. And that word is this word here, and I'm not even sure. I know the second word is charis. So I'm going to say this is Karen. Let's just go with carrying, okay? We'll go with that one. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it. Um, that means greetings in Greek. Do you notice how similar the next word is? Charis means grace. And so he was using convention, but where people would expect to hear the word greetings, instead they hear the word grace. And then they hear the word peace, which was very important, would have been very important and very needed in a church that was quarreling. Uh, because that peace can only come from God. And that peace is what they need. So now Paul is going to tell them how thankful he is for them. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's a little different than Galatians, isn't it? 
That's just a little bit different feel. He loves them. He is overjoyed by them. And, and joy is a theme of this letter. And he begins by modeling that joy. He's saying, I remember you with joy. And that joy isn't rooted in his circumstance. He's in prison. And yet, his, and his future is uncertain. And yet, he is joyful. He rejoices. Because his, his joy does not depend on his circumstances. It depends on the gospel. And if the gospel is okay, he's okay. And the gospel is advancing, not just in spite of his circumstances, but because of it, which is something he's going to talk about in a minute. His joy remains firm. And then he talks about their partnership with him. That word for partnership is the word koinonia, which those of you uh, who are around in the 70s probably know means fellowship or sharing. But Paul means more than that. He's talking about the specific tangible help that the Philippians have given to Paul time and time again during his ministry. And in fact, this letter is in part a thank you letter because yet again they have sent him a gift and a person uh, to help take care of his needs. Um, uh, so the Philipp but he's also saying that the Philippians didn't just stand by him in good times. Whether I'm defending the gospel or whether I'm rotting in prison, you still support me. You don't forget about me. You don't think, well, he must have done something wrong or else he wouldn't be in prison. No, you still care about me in good times and in bad times. And then there's this famous um, verse uh, that has, is sometimes pulled out of the context, and I love reading it in its context, that, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is another reason why Paul rejoices over them, not only because God is working in them, but because they're sending him a gift and sending him a Epaphroditus is the very evidence that God is at work in them. I know God's at work in you. You know why? Because Epaphroditus is standing right here beside me. And I have everything I need physically because of the way you have supported me. And so that brings Paul great joy. What he's saying there, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, that's what we call sanctification. And we talked about that at the end of Galatians. That process, that lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus, that day by day, year by year, our lives should line up more directly with Jesus. We should become more and more like him, be conformed into his image, as Paul says elsewhere. But it doesn't happen now. It's a lifelong process. Notice he says that he will be faithful to complete it. Next week, by the time you're in the nursing home, no. He says he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't happen completely. It isn't finished until we stand before Jesus. That is the point at which we will, we will be made just like him. Uh, the word tells us. So the Philippians' assistance stands as confirmation that God is at work in their lives, and they are responding in obedience to God. And then lastly uh, on this passage, can you, can you just sense the affection he has for these people? He loves them. It is so passionate and, and so real that he just loves um, the church at Philippi, and they are themselves a source of joy for him. I'm going to skip that share and grace thing. It's just another reference to their support. And let's move on to uh, chapter, or excuse me, verses 9 through 11. 
And this is my prayer. I just I have to tell you that I've read this over and over this week just to read it, not to study it. And I've been convicted to pray this for my children. What a beautiful prayer for anyone. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here's this prayer in a nutshell. Paul is, is praying uh, that the Philippians might grow spiritually with the ultimate goal that God will receive the glory and praise. He's praying that the Philippians will grow spiritually with the ultimate goal that God will receive the glory and praise. And again in this prayer, the theme of unity is pervasive. Because look at that prayer again. It's a recipe for unity, is it not? That as we act in love and we're, and we're discerning and we're understanding that we will be unified. If we are abounding in love and knowledge and insight, if we're able to discern what is best and are filled with the fruit of the Spirit, are we likely to be engaging in petty disagreements? No. Those words are very similar. Knowledge, insight, and discernment. Three very similar words. Uh, knowledge just refers to general knowledge, but notice that it says that your, your love may abound more and more in knowledge. And so what he's talking about there is a knowledge that, that acts out in obedience to God, that acts out in love, that obeys the commandment to love one another. The word insight means moral perception. It means knowing the right thing to do and then doing it. And then discernment means to be able to distinguish what really matters, to know the truth and to live it. And then he says, so that you may be pure and blameless. Now that doesn't mean perfect. It can't mean perfect because we won't be perfect until the day of Christ Jesus. And it wasn't the day of Christ Jesus yet. So, but he does say that such devotion will keep them pure and blameless. Uh, it doesn't mean perfect, but it does mean righteous. It does mean clothed with the righteousness of God. However, that word blameless is very interesting. It is a crazy, long, weird word, so I didn't even write it on the board. But what it literally means is either not stumbling or not causing to stumble. And the context uh, tells you which of those it means. Paul may have his eye on unity again. He may mean not causing others to stumble. That you would be pure and blameless, that you would not cause your brothers and sisters to stumble by fomenting arguments with them. We can't know that for sure, but it's entirely possible that that's what he meant. And then what are the, what are the, what's the fruit of righteousness? That's, that's Galatians 5. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that those would be lived out in your lives. And then he ends with the result. The result is that God will be glorified in and through our lives. What a beautiful prayer. For, for us to pray for our children, heck, if y'all want to pray that for me, I'm all over that. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful prayer. Uh, and then he's going to discuss the progress of the gospel, uh, beginning in verses 12 through 14. 
don't know, Julie, it got, it's got me gummed up here. Thank you. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So Paul, this is what Paul wants them to know. Now, this is a transition. Uh, these verses are a transition from, from his gratitude and, and his opening words to an explanation of what his situation is, of what's going on with them because they're concerned about him. But does he really tell us anything about his physical situation? No, what he tells us about is the gospel and what's happening with the gospel and more specifically the progress of the gospel and how his own persecution has led to the spread of the gospel, led, led to it spreading more rapidly. Not in spite of his imprisonment, but because of his imprisonment. Um, 17 years ago, almost exactly, because that was a hard year for me. Um, I won't go into all the details, but one of the things that happened within a three-month span um, was that my older sister's house burned literally to the ground. They lost everything that they owned, uh, that they didn't run out of the house in. Now, the dog survived, the kids survived, and my sister and brother-in-law survived, but they lost everything. And so one of my mother's friends, a uh, very gracious and generous lady, got together a party, because what else would you do at a party? And, um, and, and all the friends gave money. She called it a feather your nest party and gave money for Carrie and Steve to begin rebuilding their home and their lives, uh, which they have done. Um, but I remember Carrie talking to them and thanking them afterward, and here's what she said. She said, we are so blessed. God has blessed us, not in spite of the fire, but because of the fire. And I remember thinking, how, how can she even say that? I mean, you've lost everything. How can you even say that? But she really felt that way. She felt that joy because she saw how God had worked in her life, in her children's lives. And even to this day, uh, a teacher asked Sarah recently if any, you know, to write about something traumatic in her childhood, and she couldn't really think of anything. And all of a sudden she went, oh, my house burned down when I was six. And she's like... <laughs> and as she talked to, to Sarah about that, uh, the professor said, that's an example of how, a par how parents helped a child process a trauma well. Write about that. It isn't that she was living in denial. It's like it's not that bi big a deal because they saw how God worked through that, not in spite of the fire, but because of it, not in spite of Paul's imprisonment, but because of it. Now, that doesn't make sense, really, in our normal minds, our normal way of thinking. So... This would have been surprising to them. In fact, when, he, when it says, um, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, that word actually would be better um, said as rather, interpreted as rather, because it would be something that's surprising to them, that rather than actually making the gospel less, it has made it more available to the people because I'm in prison. So, so Paul explains this. First of all, he says, I am in chains for Christ. Now, there is a sense in which that means that he is in chains for the cause of Christ, and that is true. And I believe that that's part of what Paul is saying, but I believe he's saying more than that. I believe that he's saying that he is participating 
in the suffering of Christ by being in prison. Because just as the purpose of Christ's suffering was for, for God to advance, to achieve his redemptive purpose through that suffering, Paul is saying God is still achieving his redemptive purpose. This time it's through my suffering. And that's become obvious. And people have come to Christ because they've seen how God has been in, at work in and around this entire situation. And that's something only God can do. So Paul is in prison not only for Christ, but in Christ as well. And that caused many, even Roman guards, to come to Jesus. And then he says, and secondly, not only that, but my imprisonment, because of my imprisonment, the brothers have become even more bold in declaring the gospel. It doesn't matter that I'm in prison and I can't preach, because they're out there hitting it. They are preaching the gospel with more boldness. I believe that Paul's boldness and Paul's witness emboldened them. Dude, if he can live for Jesus in prison, we can live for Jesus out here. When I was first deciding whether or not uh, to go to Zambia, um, the thing that sealed the deal was a conversation with my husband, who is like my biggest fan and always says, yes, go, do, do whatever. And, and I just appreciate that. Maybe he just wants to get me out of the house for two weeks. I don't know what... <laughs> Uh, but a, a discussion with him, and I've got to tell you, and I know most of you are going to not think this, but for me, this was one of the most romantic things he ever said to me. He looked me in the eye and he said, Amy, you are a fearless woman. Now, I didn't feel fearless, because there's snakes in Africa, and I didn't want to go. Uh, but my husband's belief in me, you know that song by Nicole Nordeman, You Make Me Want to Be Brave? His belief in me, his looking me in the eye and saying, Amy, you're a fearless woman, go to Africa just made me want to be brave. It made me more bold. And I think that's ha what happened with these other believers who were emboldened by Paul's example to preach the gospel. Now, some of them were emboldened for wrong reasons. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So some of the brothers were preaching out of envy. Who were these? They were not false teachers. They were not like the Judaizers. You know how we know? He calls them brothers. And he says they're preaching the true gospel. He doesn't say some are preaching a true gospel and some are teaching a false gospel. They're all teaching the true gospel. They just had poor motivations. They, they, they opposed Paul personally. They wanted to undermine his authority and his ministry, and that was their motivation. Now, Paul isn't saying here that motivation doesn't matter, that it doesn't matter what your motivation is as long as the, you know, the ends justify the means. I think the key to understanding why he takes this attitude toward it has to do with the situation that, uh, that surrounds Philippians. Because there are other places, 1 Thessalonians for one, Galatians for another, where he definitely talks about motivations being important. But in this case, he is not writing to people who are coming under the influence of, of these men uh, or coming under the influence of false teachers. And, and in those other places, he is talking to people who are coming under the influence of probably false teachers 
uh, and, and at least, at the very least, people with bad motivations. And this is a different situation. So now, to, to finish out this portion of the letter, he's going to talk about um, Christ being exalted uh, in everything. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by, given by the Spirit of, G of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Boy, I'm having trouble standing up even now. Um, now, he says there that he knows that this will turn out for his deliverance. And as I told you, that word is sotoria, which means salvation. And I think that Paul means salvation here. I don't think he means that it will turn out for me being set free from prison. He thinks that's true too, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying what will happen to me will result in my final salvation. What? Isn't he saved already? Yes. He's saved already. We're all saved already. There's a sense, however, for each of us that our salvation, the consummation, the finalization of that salvation will not happen until the day of Christ Jesus, until we stand unashamed before Christ because of what he has done on our behalf. And so he believes that, that ultimately it will be, uh, that, that it will lead to his final salvation. Uh, whether he lives or dies, he will be delivered. He will end up in heaven with Christ at some point. And he may have meant to leave it uncertain and, and um, you know, which one he was talking about, but I really do believe that he was talking about his final sal salvation, partly because of those words, eagerly expect. There are only two places where this word is used in the New Testament, here and in Romans 8. In Romans 8, it talks about that the, the, the creation waits with eager anticipation. It's, the creation is groaning to be redeemed in the final day by Christ. So there it's referring to, to creation and the final day. This word actually never occurred before Paul wrote it. And most theologians thought, think Paul made it up. And it's a very passionate Word. It was used after that time. In fact, even Josephus used it. But it was used after that, but it's a very passionate word. In fact, the whole passage is filled with passion. I don't think Paul cares that much whether he's released from prison. I don't think he cares about standing unashamed before Caesar. I know he cares about standing unashamed before Jesus. I know he's fashion, passionate about his final salvation. And so it seems to me that this very passionate word and this very passionate passage fits better with him talking about his salvation, that his deliverance will come through the means of death, through his death when he goes to be with his Lord. And either way, Christ is exalted. How convicting is that? Whether I live or I die, Christ gets all the glory. I have never said that in my entire life. And then verses 21 through 26, for... Because it doesn't matter to me if I live or die. You know why? Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith 
so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul's, Paul's perspective on his circumstances is amazing. To live is Christ. Not just Christ is important to me, not just, just you know, Christ is the most important thing to me. No, as, as um, Dr. Thielman says, his entire existence derived its meaning from his Lord. Life for Paul was Jesus Christ. Not just about him, it was him. But to die, that's even better. That, you know, those of us with kids at home, that's not, the, that's not the way I think. Maybe it's the way you think. It's not the way I I'm on a plane yesterday going, please don't let it go down because I leave two children without a mother. Uh, and, you know, it's, I, that's not the attitude of to die is even better. It's I want to get home, even if it is at 3 in the morning. He can't decide which one he prefers. He can't pick. He's like, I'd really rather die. And for him, if it weren't for the Philippians, he'd be like, duh, I want to die. Uh, I'd rather go home and be with Jesus. Again, he is modeling for the Philippians humility. He believes that he will remain. Why? Because it's better for them. And so he is modeling for them what he is specifically going to tell them in chapter 2. To consider others better than themselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's more concerned about their situation than he is with their own. It's better for you that I stay. So even though I'd rather die, I'm going to stay because it's better for you. That's not how we see death in our culture, is it? We postpone it as long as possible. We don't even want to look like we're aging, let alone dying. Uh, and, and we try to restore people to look as lifelike as possible uh, after they do die. Paul is excited to die. He can't wait. He wants to die. He wants to go be with Jesus. I think it is partly a function of our comfort as a society that makes us this way because it can cause us to live as if there's nothing after the grave. Now, we know there is, but based on our lives, there's a, I haven't read the book, so I'm not endorsing it, but it's called The Christian Atheist. And it's about Christians who live as though this life is all there is because they don't long for what comes after that. And, and I think especially materially, that can be true of us. This, this quote is fabulous. C.S. Lewis said this in a letter to a friend. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Not Paul. Paul, to live was Christ and to die as gain. So at the end of this uh, passage then, so through being with you again, and your joy in Christ will overflow an economy. At the end of this passage, Paul transitions again. He's transitioning out of his situation, and now he's pointing the, the laser, the focus, on the Philippians and their situation. And at, beginning in, in chapter 2, he's going to give them a beautiful presentation of what it means not only to live humbly, but to be like Jesus, to, to consider Jesus our example. Well, I'm just going to... Um, read you just a couple more short things, and then I want to leave you with just two questions to ponder. This is, Karl Barth was one of the, um, probably the, the most famous theologian of the early previous century, and, and this is what he said. Instead of what he is doing, 
Paul talks, and this is, so, this, I can't even remember who this part's, this is from Frank Thielman, and then he quotes Karl Barth. Um, instead of reporting how he is doing, Paul talks about how the gospel is doing. As Karl Barth said, he just would not be an apostle if he could speak objectively about his own situation in abstraction from the course of the gospel to which he has sacrificed his subjectivity and therewith also all objective interest in his person. To the question of how it is with him, the apostle must react with information as to how it is with the gospel. Um, oh, I guess that's it. So Paul shows uh, vividly that he has placed his own circumstance, his own circumstances under the authority of God. And he trusts that God, he is convinced that God will use those circumstances for God's glory and to accomplish his purposes. Paul saw his own circumstances, both good and bad, through the lens of the advancement of the gospel. That's all that mattered to him. It was worth it to him to suffer for the cause of Christ if the gospel was advanced. And yet, I don't want to suffer for the gospel of Christ. Heck, I don't want to suffer at all. Most of my prayers have to do, please let this plane land safely. Most of my prayers have to do with me and my family not suffering. And Paul's saying, look, if, if this is what it takes to advance the gospel, bring it on. That's what I want. Uh, and so that convicts me, and, and I thought it might convict you. So I, I just want to leave you with two questions um, to go away thinking about. First of all, how might God be working in the difficult circumstances of your life, of my life, to advance the gospel, either in our lives or in the lives of others? How might God be working in the difficult circumstances of our lives to advance the gospel, either in our lives or the lives of others? And then secondly, if God is using those things to the, advance the gospel, Ought we not rejoice in that? Even if it means suffering. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for the truth of your word. Thank you so much for Paul's joy and his passion that just leaps out at the page at us. Father, may we be women who can say, for me to live is Christ, but to die, that's even better. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I promise to come more rested next week. Thanks, ladies. <laughs>